Well, this morning, uh, we are take as, I, uh, as you probably know, if you've been here, we've uh, finished uh, the, the Gospel of John a few weeks ago, and so we're uh, probably will be doing and teaching on some different things as we kind of go into the uh, holiday season and Christmas and some different things for there. And, uh, but this morning is a date that I like to mark uh, in the church, and, and I think it's important, even if it's, you don't have a, a background and it's something new, is today is what is often uh, celebrated and called Reformation Sunday. Now, if you've come out maybe of a Lutheran background or a more formal reform background or whatever, then this would be a day that is familiar to you. But today is the 506th anniversary of the Reformation, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. And the Reformation was more than just a single event. It was really a new chapter in the history of the church, and the Reformation, again, is often kind of uh, emphasized around a single event and maybe a single person, but it was much broader than that and certainly more than we'll ever have time to talk about it. But the church was an opportunity, we talk about in the, in the uh, church language, uh, we are Protestants, and Protestant is from the word protest. We are Protestants, and the Protestants were identified as those who protested some uh, irregularities, errors, uh, that then under the Roman Catholic Church and but we don't want to necessarily, this isn't a history lesson today, but we want to take this day and use it as a springboard and say, so what? What is the Reformation, what does it do for me today? What have you done for me lately, Martin? You know, I mean, what, 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 what is the significance to me today, 506 years after that uh, October 31st date in Wittenberg when Martin Luther is... Uh, said to have nailed a what was called the 95 Thesis, really statements, and, uh, and nailed them to the door of St. Anne's Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And they were statements as a scholar under the Roman Catholic Church that Luther saw as errors or irregularities as he began to study and open the Word of God. And, and that was kind of the traditional way that if you were to put a public notice or public statement in that community. Uh, he wasn't vandalizing uh, the church at St. Anne's there in Wittenberg, Germany. It was just that was the means in which you were going to make a public statement. That would be a place the public and the people would come and read uh, whatever was listed or posted up there. And so 506 years, here we are today, and the Reformation was a turning point because it was a turning point in one man's life, one individual's life. Now again, sometimes we get focused on personalities and say, you know, we look at this person or that person and we say, well, they said this and they were flawed. Listen, can you think of anybody in history except one person that was not flawed? Can you think of anybody that in their history didn't say something they wish they didn't say or maybe they're in heaven, they look back and they wish they didn't say, we've got this obsession now where we can't have statues to people. We're going to melt them down, and, and there's this craziness that goes on and somehow uh, rewriting history. I think it's important to know your history and recognize where we were wrong. What we did wrong in order to do what? To know what we need to do right in order to be a lesson. 
And so uh, it isn't to here to celebrate a man, but I found this when I read my Bible and look at history, is that God tends to use in history, usually begins with a person, a man or a woman, that sparks a movement or a revival. That can be done in good ways, and it can be done in bad ways, but usually it's focused around somebody, and I'm just going to talk about in the church and Christianity, usually somebody that God uses, whether it's a Moses or whether it's a Martin Luther or whether it's a Martin Luther King later in history who he adopted that name, uh, that God uses an individual to bring about, if we could say this, a personal reformation that God uses in their life that sparks change or sparks a revival or a movement or whatever you want to call it. So this morning, we want to look at, and the title of this morning's message is How to Experience a Personal Reformation. And this morning, I just want to use the theme of the Reformation as kind of a launching point to talk about how to experience for our lives today a personal reformation. Now, when you hear the word reformation, I'm using that intentionally because that is the term that's used historically to define what took place 506 years ago, the Reformation period. But what I, don't, what I would rather you hear, but I'm not going to use it, but I might use them interchangeably, but when you hear Reformation, I want you to think transformation. Okay? Sometimes we think about Reformation, we're reforming something, we're putting paint on the old car, and we're just going to reform the old broken down thing. That's not what we're talking about. So when you hear the word reformation, I'm using it so we don't get confused and talk about the history, but I want you to hear transformation. I want you to hear transformation and uh, let that kind of maybe just be an emphasis that uh, you keep in mind there. Transformation is what Jesus is all into in the gospel. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they would have it more abundantly. Jesus is in, in the transformational business. 506 years ago, there was a major transformation. There was a major revolution. Jesus wants to give a transformation into your life this morning. He's made the provision, and this morning, you might need some change in your life today. There may be some things that you need some reviving you need some transforming. You need the power of God to be renewed in your life this morning. And this morning, we want to talk about that. You see, the Reformation, just to, again, it's important to put it in a little context. The Reformation happened 506 years ago because the church, the church corporately at that time, was in great need. The church, up to that point in that time, and there's all sorts of history we can get into that will not be pertinent, or it is pertinent, but time won't allow it. But the church had lost its way biblically. The world had unfortunately intruded into the church in such a way that the things of the culture and the things of the world became more important than the gospel, became more power, prestige, political power, all those things became identified, unfortunately, with the church. And the church, in most cases, not everybody, but the church as a body was in great need and had lost its way. 
church had lost the message of the gospel of Jesus, the grace, the forgiveness, the unmerited favor that God gives to us and became a body that was more identified with money and, earn, and trying to put people into a bondage of, of fear and how they could earn or work their way toward heaven. That's contrary to what the gospel of Christ is all about. It reminds me of the church at that time could be said of what the Lord Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, 4, and 5. Do you remember the church at Ephesus, those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The church as a body in that period of time of the 16th century had lost its first love. And you know, in my life and in your life, the reason we need per personal reformation is because there's times and periods in my life and your life we lose focus on our first love. We get our eyes off Christ. We get our eyes off what really matters. And we become so enamored with stuff and things that don't matter. And some of the signs that, for me, I know that I need the reforming and transforming power of Christ to be renewed in my life is those times when I have lost that sense of joy in my life. I'm not talking about a giddy, goofy happiness. I'm talking about the sense of the joy of knowing Christ. And even though I'm walking through dark valleys and I'm going through tough times, there's a joy and a contentment in knowing that Jesus has my back, that Jesus is with me, and I've lost that. I need times in which maybe I'm uh, angry and I'm just irritable for sometimes the, the slightest reasons, when, when things are just bothering me out of proportion, when I might feel like the harder I work, the less joy I get. Again, you fill in the blanks. But those are signs, I believe, that we need a personal reformation. We need a transforming work of Jesus Christ in our life to be renewed. That isn't just talking about when we become a Christian and we get saved. We need the reforming, transforming work of Christ to be made real in every part of our life. So this morning we're going to talk about how to have a personal reformation. I think one verse that comes to mind as a wonderful starting place is the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 12, where he said to me, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Some of you need to pray that prayer and have prayed that prayer. Restore to me the joy of your work, your presence in my life. A great prayer. And so today we want to look at how we do that and use the, as a backdrop this day and we celebrate and call it Reformation Sunday. There was a series that I did on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which was in uh, 2017, 1517, October 31st is the date that is attributed to when Luther went to that church and did that, that sparked uh, the Reformation movement. We did a series here for the month of October in that month of 2017 called Anchored, and I went through the what are identified as the five pillars of the Reformation. There's a Latin word that oftentimes is identified, and that's the word 
sola, S-O-L-A, sola, means alone in Latin. And so the Reformation was identified around five pillars or these five solas that meant alone. And we're going to break those down in a little bit. If you have your bulletin, just uh, uh, show you something on the cover of your bulletin there where it has the scripture verse there. But you notice the little uh, symbol there, and that symbol uh, is identified there at the bottom there with the little heart and the cross. That's called Luther's Rose. That was somebody that designed that for him, and uh, kind of like we would design a logo, you know, today. And he used that in all his correspondence. And if you come out of a Lutheran background or whatever, then you'll uh, say, hey, that's a symbol of our church there. But it later, of course, be identified with the Lutheran church movement, which, by the way, Luther was always against any movement being identified with him, or certainly he was always against anything being called, anything identifying his name, but those that came after him did that. But it's interesting, that little symbol there, you notice the cross there is in black, and that was a reminder of the blackness of our sin, that Jesus uh, came to that cross and bore our sin. The heart there, of course, the heart red, the heart of Christ that overcovers or overshadows and covers the blood of Christ, that covers the blackness of my sin, that reminds me of the grace and forgiveness of God. And you see that those, uh, which to me doesn't really look like a rose, but that's what they call it, Luther's rose. You see five little petals there, and those five little petals were to be emblematic and symbolic of the five solas, or the five themes, if you will, of the Reformation. Keep in mind that the Reformation in no way perfected the church. There was, like any historical movement, even today, it was flawed. There was lots of issues and things that were wrong. But the church is imperfect because it's filled with what? Imperfect people. And so sometimes we want to reminisce and think, oh, I wish I could go back to the time of the Puritans or the Luthers. I don't want to go back there. Okay, I don't want to go back there. I'm not saying they didn't do a lot of great, good things and a lot of beneficial, but I'm okay right now. You know, I'm okay. Even in the church today, there's a lot of things that, again, we sometimes look through with uh, rose-colored glasses and... uh, But what can we be reminded of when we talk about what are some of these truths and how can we build maybe around this theme of needing and how we can have a personal reformation, a personal transformation. Notice number one, and each of these are the five pillars of the Reformation. Number one, the first pillar that was identified with the Reformation is to stand on grace alone. Solo, sola, gratia. Sola, uh, Latin, gratia, grace alone. Stand on grace alone. The church, as I said, lost its way. It was not a church that understood, or at least in theory, understood grace, but they weren't practicing grace. It was a church movement in Luther's time that was focused upon how can I make myself better and better in order to hopefully earn God's favor. And so they had all sorts of ways that they sought to do that that really gave people no assurance. And so the first place we begin is a reminder that I need to stand on grace alone. You know the scripture in Ephesians 2.8. It says, God saved you by His grace 
when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. That's what grace is. We stand on the very foundation pillar that this salvation is a gift of God. It's interesting that gift and grace in the Greek language, and you know the New Testament was written in Greek, is the same word. The gift of God's grace and, the God, and God's grace is a gift. That's where personal reformation began. You know, as I said, this began with a transformation, reformation in Martin Luther's life. He was desperate to know God. He had come to a place, even becoming a Roman Catholic monk and, and subjecting himself to all sorts of uh, behaviors that thought that the more he suffered and the more he tormented himself, that somehow he could earn God's favor. There's stories of him uh, laying out uh, naked in the, I guess you could do that when you're around a bunch of male monks, but anyway, uh, laying out naked in the snow all night, freezing and subjecting his body to the, to the uh, torture of, of, of that cold that the more he suffered in his body, that somehow he would feel more accepted by God. Uh, he and others uh, would, would have these small little whips with these knots or these metal uh, bone knots that they would whip themselves and cause pain in their back. All sorts of torturous things. Why? Because he was so desperate to feel and experience the love of God. You say, oh, that's crazy. No, we, we did the same thing. Now, we're in Florida, so you're not laying out in the snow. But we do the same thing. We, we, we go around beating ourselves up and doing all sorts of things because we have convinced ourselves that we don't deserve God's love. And here's the flash, flashpoint. You don't. You don't. That's why it's called Grace. We do the same thing. We subject sometimes ourselves and think, well, God is kind of like medicine. The worse it, ta worse it tastes, it must be good. And we kind of approach in the way we serve God that way. That God really doesn't want us to be happy. He doesn't want to bless our life. He doesn't want us to have favor in our life. He doesn't want to bless our family. He doesn't want to answer our prayers. And so we just kind of feel that we're subjected to the anger of God. You know, so many Christians feel like God's angry with them all the time. Luther struggled to know God. He struggled to know the love of God. He couldn't understand and accept the grace that was gifted to him. The truth of the matter is that even as Christians, even though we would never argue that salvation is by grace. We would admit that and say that, yes. But, but we often feel like the grace that saved us, is not, that that grace can't be good enough to keep us. So what do we do? We're saved by grace, but we end up living a life where we're trying to constantly perform in such a way in our personal religious life that God will be pleased with me, and He won't let me go. No, the grace that saved you is the grace that keeps you, and it's the grace that will take you to His presence one day. The grace of God. And so for personal renewal, you might need to be reminded this morning, you might be 
a little shaky inside and unsure of yourself, unsure of life, unsure of things, unsure of God's love. And the best way to do that is to renew a sense of standing on the grace of God. Peter reminded us of this in 1 Peter 5.12. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that, you experience, that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in His, what? Grace. Luther, one of the famous statements attributed to him was, something that he said about four years later, after he had nailed those 95 doctrinal statements on the door of St. Anne's Church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And of course, uh, he was just hoping to start a theological discussion in the Roman Catholic Church. But, it, but as he studied the Word of God and studied that God meets us by grace and that we are justified by faith, one of his favorite scriptures that changed his life was a scripture that I have there on the front of your bulletin from Romans 5, that he just thought everybody would know the truth. If you Remember when you maybe first became a Christian and you thought, I can't wait to share this with my friends and family. And you thought they will be so excited when they hear this truth that I've discovered. And you go to them and not only are they not excited, but they're mad at you. They're angry at you. They think you're crazy. Well, Martin Luther began to write and teach, and after a while, some of his teachings made its way to the, the Pope, and all of a sudden they said, this is heresy, because what he was writing, without again getting into a lot of minutia of this, is he was writing things that became contrary to the teachings of the church, not the Bible. It was the Bible and the Word of God that by God's Spirit that opened up these, these truths in a new way, new to Him. And they said, we can't have this because if He goes around teaching this and other people start embracing, that's going to undermine the entire authority of this, of this church. And so they put Him on trial four years later on April 18th, 1521. And it was called the Council of Worms. If you read it, it looks like the Council of Worms. But in Germany, they say Worms, so the Council of Worms. And he was called on, the Pope sent one of his top legal theologian, Johann von Eck, who was an archbishop and a, a lawyer for the, the pontiff, and they put Luther on trial. And under penalty of death, these commentaries that he wrote on the book of Romans and all this teaching about grace and justified by faith and the mercy of God and the favor of Jesus, all these things. They put all these writings and papers and books there on the table and said, in essence, called up on him that if he did not renounce these errors and repent, that he would be put to death. I want you to read just on the screen here what Luther replied. Luther said, unless I am convinced by testimonies of Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe neither the Pope nor councils alone, since it is established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. He said, I am the prisoner of the Scriptures cited by me. 
and my conscience has been taken captive by the word of God, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You see, he made his stand on grace. We need to be renewed and have our stand on grace. If you're on the shaky ground of living on religious performance, stand on grace. It's a much surer foundation that Jesus has given us. So to experience personal spiritual reformation, it's not on, only on grace alone, but secondly, is to rely on Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura was the Latin phrase of Scripture alone. Again, without getting into the minutiae of the history, the church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't that they didn't believe in the Bible, but they just no longer accepted the Bible as, a, as the ultimate th authority. That the authority of the traditions of the, the pontiffs, the popes, the, the uh, teachings, they became equal and in oftentimes greater weight than the authority of Scripture. So where the two teachings might have met, the teaching of quote-unquote the church took precedent over the teaching, as we would say in our today, the Bible. And so Luther said, you know what, I don't think that's correct. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And one of the ways that he has built his church and continues to build his church is through his word. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. One of the scriptures that we look to is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. If you have an NIV, I, like, I really uh, should have used the NIV because I like the way the NIV uses the word inspired. And, it, and if you have an NIV or maybe the ESV, I'm not sure, is it says all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the literal rendering of inspire. Inspire, God-breathing. When a person dies... On the coroner's report, they write down the time and date when they expired. Life, breath went out. Inspire is what? Life comes in. When God created man from the dust of the ground, what did he do? He inspired him, and the Bible says he became a living soul. This book is a living book because it is inspired by God. The Bible becomes the standard. See, the Bible was no longer the standard of the church. Traditions, traditions that were not grounded in Scripture became the standard. I have a ruler here, and uh, it has 12 inches, and this ruler is how many feet? One foot. Now, I went to Walmart, and they had one on sale that was 13 inches that was one foot. You got more for your money. I thought that was kind of good. Dollar store, they only gave you eight inches and called it a foot. But I got one I think is accurate. Now, you realize how silly that is because this is a standard. I'm going to hit myself with it. This is a standard of measurement, isn't it? So you hire a contractor to work on your house. And you say, you know what, I'll give you a better deal. I'll give you 15 inches for every foot. 
I'll give you more, I'll give you more inches and we'll call it a foot. Well, don't hire that guy. Why? We have a standard, don't we? We have a standard by which we measure something. It is universally accepted what this standard of measurement is. I use that just as a goofy illustration to say that the Bible is a standard by which we measure and judge truth or non-truth, information. The church in Luther's day lost the standard. In fact, you remember in what Jesus said, I kind of alluded to it, Matthew 15, 3, when Jesus answered the Pharisees, He said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? We always think, well, you know, why didn't those Pharisees know who Jesus was? Because they loved their their own accumulation of teachings and traditions and had lost sight of the standard of the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus said pointed to Him. They were blinded by their traditions. You know, the same thing can happen to us when we begin to drift into things that are error, when we begin to drift into things and stray from the standard of God's truth. So many Christians read their Bible, they read it devotionally, but then they kind of weigh out what maybe this person said, what my neighbor said, what the horoscope said today, um, you know, what somebody on uh, the TV said, what Oprah is saying, or or whatever it is, and they just kind of have this hodgepodge You know what a hodgepodge is? That's just a little of this, a little of that, whatever. You know, it's a hodgepodge. And then I heard people say, well, I have my own religion. And that's exactly right. You have your own religion. You have a a 10-inch ruler you're trying to convince me is a foot. You have no reliable standard. I felt like a teacher doing that. I remember one time... Christine Rockefeller, the principal at Wilson Elementary School in fourth grade. Because on the kickball field, I called a guy a cuss word. And she took me in that office and took my hand with a ruler, and it wasn't flexible. It was a wooden ruler. And beat my hand so hard, made me stand in the corner. I don't know why I just thought of that, but (laughs) TMI. All right. But see, we live in a day that the Bible predicted in 2 Timothy 4.3, talking about people that accumulate their own standards. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.3, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow what? Their own desires. And look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. You see, the Bible calls the the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12, I'll skip and put that on the screen. For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Notice this, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. A double-edged sword... One edge is a deadly edge. The other edge is a life-giving edge. The life-giving edge, you know, the the doctor, uh, uh, a sharp scalpel in a skilled, trained physician's hands 
can open up your body, your heart, and perform life-giving treatment and surgery to your body. You don't just hand a knife to your neighbor and say, hey, can you come over here and look at my kidneys? Just cut it open right there. I, I see you out hacking wood and make it, you know, can you just? No. The, whole, the Lord is a skillful physician, right? And so the Word of God is a life-giving. Does that mean that sometimes when the Word of God cuts, you're like, ew, ah, as tough as you think I am, I still flinch when those nurses give me those shots. I try to be macho and tough, and I think, okay, they won't see me jerk when they put that needle in my arm, and all of a sudden I'm like, Ugh, you know? The Word of God, used by the skillful spirit, can do life-giving transformation into our lives. But here's the kicker. If you let it. If you let it. And the other, the other part of that sword is it can be a deadly sword. A deadly sword means that it puts to death the lies and the ungodly things in my life that are not pleasing to the Lord. The Word of God, as Hebrews says, it is powerful. It is alive. And it is our standard if we're willing to let the Word of God change the way you think, change the way you live and act, change your character, set you free from old lies, old habits, old traditions that are not rooted in the standard of truth. But notice the third thing to experience spiritual, personal spiritual reformation is, is to walk by faith alone. The third sola of the Reformation, to walk by faith alone. Again, Luther loved the book of Romans. It was the book of Romans that revolutionized, transformed. And you know, in today's vernacular, we would say that Martin Luther had an encounter with the Spirit when the Word of God... Listen, the man knew Hebrew and Greek. I mean, he was a brain, but he wasn't born again. He was a brilliant man teaching in the seminaries and teaching the languages of Hebrew, Greek, Latin, all those things, and could wax eloquently... Eloquent, eloquent, eloquent. <laughs> Welcome to marriage today. <laughs> All right, some of you will. All right, he, he just could talk really well. All right. <laughs> but he wasn't born again. And he thought, I've achieved all this. Why am I so miserable? Why do I feel like God is just waiting to take me out any moment if I do the slightest thing? That's a horrible place to, to live. But let's be real, some of you have lived that way. Some of you might be living that way now. Luther, the book of Romans, is what God, the Holy Spirit, the author of the book, opened his eyes, Romans 1.17, just one example of many, that says in the New Living Translation, says this good news, this gospel, tells us, look at the language, this good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. When you see faith, think trust, trust. As the Scriptures say, 
It is through faith that a righteous person has life. On your outline, circle on the... Do I have that in your outline there, that verse? Circle right in his sight. Just put a circle around that phrase, right in his sight. And then that word righteous, put a little circle around that word righteous. And then just draw a line that connects them both because that's what it means to be in sync and justified is to be right in his sight, to be declared righteous before God. How did that happen? By grace, by grace alone. And how do we accept that? We accept it by complete trust that what God, has, what God has said is true and what God has done in and through Jesus Christ, I trust that that work that Jesus died, His death became my death. My death wouldn't do you any good, but His death, and that's why when we baptize, we believe what the New Testament teaches about baptism by immersion because we're identified with the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That when a person, I kind of point over here because this is where our baptismal tank will be, that when a person sits in that water, they sit there and as a, emblematic of the old person, meaning their person represented before Christ. And then when they go under the water, it is, it is symbolic of being buried with Christ. That I am dead, I am buried with Christ, and as they are raised up, they are raised up as identified with the resurrection of Jesus unto new life. That's why baptism by immersion can only be the picture of that identification with Christ. And so the Bible says that to be righteous, that I'm trusting in Him. I'm trusting in what He's done. It doesn't mean that I feel it. You should feel it, but sometimes I don't feel it. You ever not feel saved? All right, don't raise your hand. Let me just think you're nice and religious today. Of course, sometimes I don't feel saved. Sometimes I just don't feel it. But you know what? If I was basing on feelings, but that's where I go back to the standard. You see, the devil always wants to come into your life and say, did God really say? You remember the devil doing that back in the garden? Did God really say? I mean, yeah. If people knew how black your heart was, do you really think you think how many times he gets tired of you asking for forgiveness for that same habit? Come on. The standard. I am justified. Not I'm trying to be justified. Not I hope to be. I am justified by faith in Christ alone. Interesting little story of Luther. You've heard me tell it before. At one time, the story is told he was in his study. And of course, Luther had some very interesting things that he wrote about. And one of the things he wrote about, interestingly, was what we would call and identify as spiritual warfare. And one time he was in his study in the, trying to remember the name of the castle, but it was the castle identified when he wrote that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he was there alone, and he just said, and he wrote, to paraphrase, that he sensed the evil presence of the devil in a very unusual way. And even in that room over near the fireplace, he, it's like he sensed that the devil was over there laughing and mocking at him because for a period of time, Luther was being hunted down by the Pope and they wanted to kill him and arrest him. And he lived in fear and people that he thought were his friends weren't his friends and all this torment. 
Was it worth it? Look at what you're doing. Look at what you've become. Look how you've alienated. And he just said, he just sensed the devil was over there mocking him and ridiculing him and saying, You were just, people knew what a rotten sinner you are and how dark your heart was and all the stuff, the same garbage the devil throws your way. And the story is told that Luther took his inkwell where he was writing, took the little inkwell full of ink and just took it and slung it and threw it over at that fireplace and say, Devil, you're right. You're right on everything you say, but the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven me of all my sins. Romans 3.22 says that we are made right with God by placing our faith, trust in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. I love the no matter who we are. Amen? The fourth truth of the Reformation to experience personal spiritual reformation is that I must hope in Christ alone. Sola Christus. Christ alone. Hope. And I'm not talking about hope so. There's times in which I've entered, you know, we talk to people about their salvation and, and, and sometimes we'll ask them the two diagnostic questions. Do you believe that if you died tonight that you would go to heaven? Well, I hope so. Well, we want to do, we want to do something about that hope so. We want to move the hope so to a no so. Right? Um, it isn't a hope so. It is a hope. That's not what we're talking about. Hoping in Christ alone. I hope. I hope. Jesus paid it all. No. It means that you are certain. Think of hope as an anchor. As an anchor, my hope is like an anchor that what Jesus said, that what Jesus did, what He promised, that is going to hold me now. I may not feel like I'm holding on to Jesus very tightly, but here's the hope in Christ alone, is He's holding me really tight. And He will not let me go. He told His Father in that great prayer that those whom You have given me and put in my hand, nobody snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm glad we're not here to reminisce about a dead historical figure but we talk about a living hope a resurrected hope a live hope built around that Jesus Christ is alive. Psalm 33, 22, Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. See, we put our hope in other things. We put our hope in that job that was going to be a promise to last us for a lifetime. It didn't. We put our hope in that 401k and saying it seems like that hasn't done it. We put our hope in that house, the car, my spouse, whatever it is, we're putting our hope in something that will never satisfy us the way our longing heart needs to be satisfied. Especially when you put your hope in a person. Here's a newsflash. People, including me at the front of the line, will disappoint you. Now wait a minute. We're going to talk about that at 4 o'clock today. People will let you down. 
Did people disappoint and let Jesus down? What was Jesus, even as he hung on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, my hope is in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul, I think he needed a personal reformation every once in a while. He wrote this in Philippians 3.7. Paul, as he just wrote before that, all his accomplishments and all his great things that he did, he said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He said, there was a time I trusted in all those things, all those accomplishments, but I realize it's just garbage for what Christ has given me. You see, personal reformation, we stand on grace alone, we rely on Scripture alone, we walk in faith alone, and we hope in Christ alone. But there's a final sola, and that's we live for God's glory alone. Sola Dea Gloria is the Latin phrase. Sola, we live under, and, or rather for God's glory alone. Talking about worship. And sometimes when we talk about worship, we immediately think worship is what we did earlier. We think worship is singing songs and, you know, the preliminaries before the preaching or whatever. We think that's what worship is. Worship, biblically speaking, and uh, don't be impressed with my Latin because I do not know Latin. I just read the phrases. But there's a few that I think are really significant. And if you ever read uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, Table Talk, they, they have this as, a, as, a, as part of their, um, in their magazine all the time. And it's the phrase, Coram Deo. And it's the phrase, living life under the presence of God. And here's what they mean by that. Here's what I think living under the glory of God alone, is that my life, all of my life, not just my religious church life, but all of my life is to be lived under sacred acknowledgement to the glory of God. That means if I am a ditch digger for the city of Lakeland, I am to be the best ditch digger. Why? For the glory of God. I'm early. I stay late. I do my job. I don't rip off the company. Because why? I'm living Coram Deo. I'm living my life as a vessel and an act of worship before the Lord. I'm living my life, my personal life, for the glory of God. It is where my life, it, that I realize that my life, my existence, as Paul said in Acts 17, in Him we live and move and have our very being quoting a, a secular source, but he applied it to biblical truth. In God, we live and move and have our very being, our very existence. Paul would say in Colossians 1, in Him, all things are held together. What holds my life together? Christ. I'm living under the glory of God alone. And that's why sometimes when, when people hit a certain age and they're out trying to find themselves, I'm going to sell everything and start a blog and buy a Harley and go out west and find myself. And by the time they get to Oklahoma City, they're like, I don't like myself. I'm trying to find myself. Listen, you will never find yourself until you find yourself in Him. You hear me quote Augustine all the time. Our hearts are restless 
until they find rest in thee. You're restless this morning because you've never, you've never put yourself under the glory of God. You live for yourself. We all do. And that's why word I love to keep using is that word calibrate. Because you know what calibration is. Those of you that work in industries and machinery and all that. Because if you don't regularly calibrate that machinery, guess what? After a while, it'll start breaking down or it'll not produce what it was intended to produce. Calibration. That's why I calibrate myself under the presence of God, quorum Deo, to the Word of God. I'm living my life in the presence of God. And when I find that I'm living my life in the presence of God, living for God's glory, I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living to glorify and honor. And people that look at my life, it just ricochets and points them to Him. John Piper, in his notable statement, says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. You know what the problem is? We're not satisfied with God. We're always trying to look for something else. Yeah, that's good, but... You see, the essence of the gospel that Jesus preached, the reason why He died, was for us to know God. That's why He came. You remember what he said in John 17, 1 through 3? After saying all these things, as Jesus in this, what is often called a high priestly prayer, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so He can give glory back to you. For you have given Him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one. You have given Him, verse 3, and this is the way to have eternal life. Here it is. To know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. Jesus said in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God. When somebody asked him, said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said in Matthew 22, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. On your outline... I don't, these won't be on the screen, but what do I need to do to experience a personal reformation? How do we make these even more applicable? And they're on the outline there. I've already written them out, so you can just have them. What do I need to do now to put these truths into action? You see, what usually gets in the way of a personal reformation is trying to hold on to the old thing, or we're trying to grasp the new thing. I am notorious for trying to take in stuff to the house in one trip. If I have to balance it on my head, right? And that's okay, unless you're balancing spaghetti sauce and a lot, you know, it's not... So you can't be looking to grab and grasp the newness of the truth of God and transforming your life while you're still trying to hold on to the old junk. With each of these 
sola, something must let go in order for you to hold on to these truths. For example, by grace alone, I must let go of thinking I can work my way into God's graces and realize it's a gift. By Scripture alone, I must let go of my version of truth that I've built up and accumulated through the years and embrace God's truth. To experience faith alone, I've got to let go of the direction I want to go and be willing to go any direction and trust Him that He wants me to go. To experience Christ alone, I've got to let go of all the other places I try to find hope. And my hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And to live for God's glory alone. I need to let go of living for myself and allow my life to be used for His glory. To allow my life to be used for God to express His goodness and love and mercy. Think about that. God wants to use my life, your life, to express His goodness. His mercy, His grace. But if I'm trying to hold on to my stuff, I have no room to let Him give me His beautiful gifts unless I'm living my life predisposed under His presence. Not just when I come to church. When you're surfing the internet, guys. Ooh, didn't see that one coming, did we? When you have the attitudes and the words and you think nobody hears, nobody sees. I'm living my life under the constant presence of God. Who's not looking to throw down some lightning bolt like Luther carried for so many years. But he's wanting to live his life. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. Christ in us. Martin Luther's personal reformation, you could say, changed the world. And it's still changing the world. And I believe when we allow ourselves to be transformed by the power of Christ, God can change our world too. Let's pray.